It's good to see y'all tonight, and uh, as Larry said, what beautiful weather we've got. This is Chamber of Commerce weather, isn't it? So, uh, okay, I got a funny story about that, actually. Um, I had a friend at my last church who was, he was the pastor of the, of the Lutheran church in town, a little bit older than me. Um, he grew up in Missouri, and he, he moved here in the 70s to take that church in Southwest Houston. And uh, he said, the day, the day I left, it was below freezing and blowing snow in Missouri. And I get to, it was March, I get to Houston and it's 65 degrees. And so they take me on this big tour of the city and uh, you know the church and the parsonage, et cetera. And they, they're interviewing him and he said, you know, I, I could sure get used to weather like this. And they said, yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Gets a little humid in the summer though. That was what they said. Gets a little humid in the summer. You think they undersold that just a little bit? <laughs> and he just rolled his eyes when he told us the story. He said, here I am, you know, 30 whatever years later, and yeah, it gets a little humid. Um, <laughs> oh, those pulpit committees. What are you going to do? Well, we are in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, and we're picking up with verse 12. So one of the things about the English language is there are lots of words, there are several words, I should say, in the English language that have more than one definition, that are used in more than one way. I've always said, you know, learning a language as an adult is hard. I don't know if any of you have ever done it or tried to do it. I've tried to learn Spanish a few times since I've been an adult and always give up after a few weeks or months because it's just too hard. But I, I, I've got to think that learning English would have to be much harder because there are so many weird things about English. It makes sense because English is one of those languages that all these other languages have contributed to. But even aside from that, think about the different ways we use certain words. And one example is the word church. We use the word church and we could mean any of four different things. We could be referring to an event. Did you go to church this morning? What time does church start? Oh, it starts at 8.30 or 11. Did you know we're having church now at five o'clock on Saturdays? It's an event you can go to. Or we might mean a building. Boy, have you seen that new church out on, on Main Street? You know, they blocked off Main Street so they could build that atrium. It's, oh, that's a beautiful church. So we may be talking about a building. The third way we use the term church is as an institution. First Baptist Church has a pastor and has four or five other uh, paid staff and then all these other employees and, and I'm a member of First Baptist Church and I give my tithe to First Baptist and I know that some of that money goes to the Baptist General Convention of Texas and some of it goes to the Southern Baptist Convention and so we think of it as an institution. But then there's also the way the Bible uses the term church. And I believe I'm right when I say this. Every time the Bible uses the term church, it never means a building. They didn't have church buildings back then. It never means an event, and it never means an institution. It always means a body, a body of believers, a group of people gathering together. The actual word that's translated church in the New Testament is ekklesia, which just means gathering. I mean, in the, in the Greek language, that was the language you would use for any time people got together for a political rally or a party. So when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, he's saying, on this rock, that's where I'm going to build my people, my group who gathers together. And here's the thing. I'm not saying it's wrong to use the word in those other ways. 
we've, it's come to be common parlance for us. So if you say, I'm going to church at 11, everybody knows what you're talking about. I'm not asking us to change that. I'm just saying, it is possible to go to the event on Sunday morning, visit the building, and be a member of the institution, but never really be a part of the body of Christ. And that's what matters most. Those other things are important, but the gathering of God's people is what matters the most. And so this is in chapter 12, verses 12 through 30, is where Paul really dives into that image of the church as the body of Christ. And that's, that is a metaphor that he uses in other places, but this is the longest section. So we're going to look at that tonight. Let me give you some context just to remind you. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems, as we've seen already. And there were one of the problem that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 12 is there were certain quote unquote spiritual people in that church. We take that to mean there were people in the church who thought they were of a higher spirituality than the other believers based on context, probably because they had the gift of speaking in tongues and the other believers didn't. And so they thought, well, God has poured out his spirit on me in a special way, so I must be a better Christian. I must be a more important follower of God. Welcome, y'all. We're in 1 Corinthians 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Um, so last time we looked at the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 11, where Paul says, okay, I don't care what you think of yourself or how important you think you are. The fact is, every believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every believer in Jesus has some spiritual gift. Therefore, every believer in Jesus is part of the body. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 11. There aren't more spiritual and less spiritual members. There are just people who have the Holy Spirit of God and therefore have gifts. So last time we looked at what are the gifts? What do they mean? How do they contribute to the life of the church? So let's pick up with verse 12 in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. Hey, parents, good to see y'all. Very good to see y'all, actually. Uh, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what he's saying there is something that's really relevant for our time, when equality is something that's talked about a lot in the news. What this is telling us is the best equality, the most true equality on earth is the equality that exists within a spirit-filled church. I'm not saying every church has it. I'm saying a church where the Holy Spirit is in charge is a church where there's true equality because the Spirit brings true equality. Put it this way. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. And that becomes your primary identity. So, more than your race, more than your nationality, more than your profession, more than your interests, hobbies, etc., the fact that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you defines who you are and makes you have things in common with others that you may not have anything else in common with. For instance, if there's a, a Christian who is 50 years older than you if you're a young person or 50 years younger than you if you're an older person, you have more in common with that person than you do with someone your own age who doesn't know Jesus. You may not think so, 
You may sit down if you're 70 and sit down with another 70-year-old and y'all can talk about all kinds of stuff. Or if you're 20 and you're talking to another 20-year-old, y'all may have all kinds of things you can talk about. And you may look at that 70-year-old Christian across the hall and think, well, you know, that's, that's somebody my mom's age or my grandparents' age. And yet, deep down inside, you have more in common with that person when you get down to the important things, the essentials, than with someone your own age. Put it another way. You and I have more in common with a Christian who lives right now in Vietnam or Kenya or Argentina or Peru or Kazakhstan than we do with our next door neighbor who's not a believer. Now, I'm not, I don't say that to say that your next door neighbor who's not a believer doesn't matter or that we shouldn't love them. We should, absolutely. Jesus loves them and so should we. I'm saying we are bonded together with that believer from another nation with whom we don't share any thing in common. No language, no background, no, uh, no life uh, experiences, and yet we're bonded together through the Spirit of Christ. All right? You want me to go even further? You have more in common with a Christian who voted differently than you did yesterday than you do with someone who shares your political beliefs. And you're going, okay, you went too far. But I'm serious. Do you think, do you think when we're standing in that crowd that it talks about in Revelation 7, from every nation, race, and tongue, and we're singing praise to the Lamb on the throne, that anybody's going to go, oh, you voted for who? No, that's not going to matter. That's not going to matter one bit. We are bonded together by the Spirit of Christ. He goes on in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, it is hard, I, I can't prove this, because it's hard to see humor in different languages. I have a story about that, but I won't waste your time with it. I'll just say this. I believe, and can't prove it, but I believe that Paul was being funny here. I believe that the original readers, when they heard this, laughed. Just the idea that an entire body is consisting of nothing but an eye or an ear. That's a funny image. The idea that a foot, that your own foot would speak like Balaam's donkey and say, boy, I sure wish I was a hand. That's a humorous image. I think Paul is using humor here. Now, that's not important. I just think it's noteworthy to, to see. We, we think of those scriptures very dry. I think Paul's using some really colorful illustrations here. Here's the point he's making in the verses we just read. Three points, actually. Number one, he's trying to make the point, every member of the church is important. Every member is. So that's what he's talking about when he says, if the foot should say, if the ear should say, he's saying, if, if uh, Julie thinks that she doesn't matter because she can't sing very well. If Bob thinks I'm not important because I earn very little and I can't contribute financially. If Gene thinks, you know, I've never been able to get, I, I'm terrified to get up and talk before people, so I'm not nearly as important as Joe who teaches our life group. Paul says, you've got it all wrong. That's not the way it works. Every member is important. Now let's be honest, that's not the way we think. 
We all nod and shake our head and say, yeah, that's true. Every member is important. But practically speaking, we don't think that way. I'll give you an illustration from my own life. One church that I pastored, people would talk all the time about this couple that used to be in the church. He was an Air Force officer, and the Air Force had moved them. And it was right before I came. In fact, he was on the search committee that brought me, and in the meantime, before they brought me to the church, the Air Force moved him. And people would always bring that couple up, and they'd say, boy, we sure do miss them. They were so good. And I remember one time they visited. They came in just to visit and, and you know, reminisce. So they were there for a Sunday morning. And at the end of the service, our, the associate pastor asked him to stand and, and lead in prayer. This was the, that kind of church where you would just call on somebody from the, from the pulpit to pray. And he stood up, and in his prayer, he repeated all the points of my sermon. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. I couldn't even remember the points of my sermon. And, and so I was impressed with them. I, I, I met them and, and was impressed with them too. And I just have to confess to you that after that, I felt a little mad at God. Like, God, why did you take them out of the church? If they were still here, they could lead our young adults. And we need somebody to lead our young adults. If, if they were still here, he could be one of my deacons and she could be uh, the leader of our ladies ministry. And we could, we really need them, God. Why did you take them away? And you know what I was doing? Do you hear that? That's saying, okay, some people are more important than others. Those people are better than the people I had. Now, that's not the attitude a pastor should have. That's not the, past, that's not the attitude anybody should have. The truth is, every member of that church was important. Every member of that church was useful to God. And I was allowing external things... You know, the tall, good-looking couple and, and well-off and sharp and, and gifted and said, okay, they're more important. They would make our church better than what we have. And that's just not true. So let's just admit we all struggle with this, even though we know it's not scriptural. Number two, Paul's making the point, every member has an important role to play. Every member, he says, if the whole body were an eye. Again, that's a funny image, but he makes a, a, a valid point. If the, if the parts of your body all decided, you know, being the eye has to be best of all, because then you get to see stuff. I want to be an eye too. Well, then where is your body at that point? You know, all of a sudden, your, your various limbs and, and uh, extremities stop functioning. They're just indignant because they don't get to be an eye. Well, then you're in trouble. And yet, I think the reason Paul makes that point is that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. There were members of that church who said, you know, we'd be a better church if all of you lesser folks could learn to speak in tongues like we do. And Paul says, that's like the whole body saying, I want to be an eye. Yeah, there's a place for you tongue speakers. God gave you that gift for a reason. But the whole church doesn't need to do it. Everyone has their gift. Everyone has a role to play. Remember what we talked about last week. Everybody's got a gift, and if you don't know what your gift is, what your ministry is, what your calling is, I said do two things. Pray that God shows it to you and volunteer to serve. Every opportunity you get, volunteer to serve. And as you're serving, you will discover, at some point you will discover something you're good at and something that blesses other people, and you'll know you've found your calling. And it may not be a glamorous calling. It may not be something that impresses others, but it is just as important as the things that do impress others. 
The third thing Paul is saying is God designs the church the way he wants it. God designs it the way he wants it. He says, again, as it is, verse 18, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So who are we to dispute? Again, to go back to my attitude about that couple at my other church, who was I to say, God, how could you take this couple away from me? They were needed at whatever church they were a member of now. If, if I could have you know, rubbed the magic lamp and gotten God to bring them back, well, that, ch- that church would have been sorrowful, right? At the same time, I needed to appreciate the people I did have. I needed to say, God gave me these people, these members to love and to equip to become what they're meant to be. So think about the kinds of things we say. Oh man, our church needs more young people. Well, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do to reach out? You've got young people on your street. Have you invited them? Have you reached out to them? Uh, you might say, oh, you know, we, churches will say this. We need more, more good Bible teachers. My life group's got a good teacher, but I know those two or three over there, they don't have good teachers. We need more good Bible teachers. Well, instead of complaining about it, recruit some, train them, pray for them. Uh, our preacher, is, our pastor is just not a good preacher. I hope nobody here would say that, but what if you do? Well, unless he's in moral failure or doctrinal error, he's your pastor. And, and, and instead of griping about his abilities, pray that he'll get better and learn what he does do well. Learn to appreciate that. He, God's got him there for a reason. We have this idea that we can evaluate people based on certain gifts and the rest doesn't matter. And that is absolutely not biblical. So verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So a couple of things about that passage. I mean, obviously, a lot of it's obvious, but uh, a couple of things I want you to see. When he makes the point, the weaker members turn out to be indispensable. What does he mean? Paul is not giving in to the rhetoric of Corinth. He's not saying some people are better than others. He's saying the people you look at and say, okay, you don't matter. He's saying deep down inside, those people are indispensable. You can't do without them. And you may not even understand why. You may not understand why they're important, but if someday they were gone, you might see So I've got two illustrations of this. One is the drain plug on a car, okay? I don't know much about cars. Basically, the only thing I know how to do is change the oil, and I don't even do that anymore, but I think I could still remember how. I do know this. You get under the car, and you unscrew that drain plug, and the oil comes pouring out. You better have that pan under it, right? Um, So I don't know anybody who shows off the drain plug on their car. I've seen lots of big car guys who want to pop their hood and let you look at their engine. The engine is glamorous. The engine is cool. The engine is expensive. I don't know anybody who says, hey, come under here and check out this gold-plated drain plug. 
So you would say, well, the engine's more important than the drain plug, right? See what happens if you drive that car without a drain plug. You lose all your oil and your engine burns up. And some of you have experienced that. There are members of any church who perform functions that nobody appreciates. They never get recognized. They never have their name on the bulletin. They never have people give them gift cards and say, boy, we're so glad you're here. And yet, if they weren't here, we wouldn't be a fully functioning congregation. Every member matters. And the ones who are least recognized are sometimes the most important. Second illustration. No little boy that I know of ever grows up saying, when I get big, I want to be an offensive lineman. Lots of boys grow up saying, I want to be a quarterback. I did when I was little. Don't laugh. I wanted to be a quarterback. I don't know any boys who said, I want to be left tackle for the Houston Oilers or whoever. And yet, everybody can't be the quarterback. And if the left tackle isn't there, guess what happens to the quarterback? He gets destroyed. Actually, those of you who don't care anything about sports may get bored by, by this, but actually football, professional football people recognize that because the left tackle is usually the second highest paid person on the team. They know that, and yet those people aren't recognized. I bet most of us couldn't name a single left tackle in football today. We can name all kinds of quarterbacks, right? Same thing with the church. There are some people in the church that are treated like quarterbacks. They get the glamour, they get the glory. On the other hand, they get the blame when things go bad, but they get the attention. And then there are people who make things happen. There are people who enable those more recognized people to do what they do. Without those people in the trenches, those recognized people would have nothing. Weaker members, weaker, turn out to be indispensable. Second thing he's pointing out in verse 25. Let me read verse 25 for you again. But God, this is verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If someone were to ask you, what is the opposite of division in the body of Christ? You'd probably say unity, but that's not what Paul says. The opposite of division isn't, well, everybody just sort of lives and let, let's live. The opposite of division is mutual concern. The opposite of division is, I care about you and you care about me. And I know uh, your kids' birthdays. And I know when you're struggling. And I know when you got a raise at work. And I'm happy for you. I'm not jealous. And when you and your wife get to go on a trip to Hawaii, I'm not mad that you're getting to do something I don't get to do. Instead, I'm rejoicing for you. Mutual concern. Think about it in, in light of the body, the human body. If you catch a stomach virus, it's not like you can say, well, my, my stomach is miserable, but the rest of me is fine. If you throw out your back, same thing. You can't just say, well, my back is killing me, but you know, my legs and my arms and my head, you know, they're doing all right. No, your whole body is miserable. You ask Carrie, it's been a long time since I've had a stomach bug, but when, I, when that happens, I'm, I'm laid out on the bathroom floor. I'm just, I can't even move. I'm, I'm a big baby. And that's a picture of the body of Christ, the way it should be. When, we, when one of us suffers, we should all suffer. On the other hand, 
If you go out and eat a great meal, your whole body enjoys it. You're, you're happy from head to toe. If you laugh at a joke that's genuinely funny, it's not as though you say, well, my mouth had a good time, but it didn't do anything for the rest of me. No, your whole body benefits. And that's the way it should be in the body of Christ. There should be a mutual concern within Christ's body. Now, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And that's the lead in to chapter 13, which we all think of as about love. And it is. I bet most of us had it read at our wedding. It has nothing to do with married love. Doesn't mean it's inappropriate to be read at a wedding. It's just not the context of chapter 13. We'll get into that next week. First, though, I want you to look back at verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. What is Paul doing there? Is he ranking offices of the church? Is he saying the most important person in a church is the person with the office of apostle? And second most important is the person who is a prophet. And the third most important is the teacher. Well, if he is, then he's just contradicted everything he's just gotten through saying. I don't think Paul is that foolish. Paul just got through saying every member is equally important. Every member is important in the body of Christ. He's not ranking their importance. My guess, this is what I believe Paul's saying is, this is how the church started. It started with men who were known as apostles. What were apostles? Apostles were people who knew Jesus, who had a face-to-face -face relationship with him, and who he chose and sent out. That's the word. what the word apostle means, is sent one. So the church started through apostles. Men like Paul, men like Peter, men like James and John, etc., right on down the line. And then the prophets came along. And the prophets, before there was a fully formed canon of Scripture, the prophets were the men and women, because there were women prophets in the early church, who would say, thus saith the Lord. And they would, they would speak the Word of God to people in addition to what was already in the Scriptures. So first apostles, then prophets, and then along came teachers. What did teachers do? Teachers took what the apostles and the prophets had taught, and they kept it alive, and they interpreted it for the people of the church. That's what I think Paul's saying. Now, here's why I think that. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. I'll just read this for you. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, Paul writes, So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So in that passage, Paul considers apostles and prophets the foundation of the household of God. That's how the church began. So, I wouldn't bet my life on it. This is not a, an article of faith that we all have to agree on, but I think that's what Paul is saying when he says first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. The main point he's making, the point that we need to get through our minds 
is, again, everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a job to do within the local church, and it's designated by God himself. So do your role, do your part. Another question, what are the quote-unquote higher gifts? Because in verse 31, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. What does that mean? Well, he's going to talk about it in more detail in chapter 14, which we'll get to week after next. But for now, let's just say, let's just agree that Paul would have us desire gifts not based on how showy they are, how impressive they are, how much glory they bring us, but instead we would desire the, the gifts that build up the church. Whatever is needed, whatever would bless the most people in your particular congregation. That's what you should desire. That's what you should pray for. When Jesus said, pray for God to send out workers into his harvest field, I, I think we take him literally. I think we say, Lord, our, our church, there's, a, there's an opportunity for us, but we just need more of this kind of person with this kind of gift who can go and do that. Would you supply those people for us, Lord? And I think he will. Maybe they'll come from within the congregation. People will discover gifts they didn't know they had to tackle that particular ministry need, or new people will join that have that particular gift. But we should pray. We should, we should seek the higher gifts, the ones that benefit the work of God. So that's that. Now let me give you a couple of takeaways, and then we're done. First takeaway, if we're Christ's body, I think Paul uses that term not just, not just to demonstrate how the body uh, functions together. I think what he's saying is, we're the body of Christ. And that means whatever God's going to do on earth, it's probably going to be done through us. And I really do believe that. Whatever God's going to do on earth, he's going to do through his people. In other words, if I'm going to walk to the refrigerator, I'm going to walk in my body. If I'm going to if I'm going to call my parents on the phone, it's going to be in my body. I'm going to have to use my body for anything I accomplish on earth, right? Well, Jesus isn't here in the flesh anymore. We are his body now. I think this is what Jesus meant, by the way, in John when he said, greater things than this you will do. He was saying, you're impressed with all these great things I'm doing. You're going to do even greater things. And we look back at that and say, what? I, we can't walk on water. I can't raise the dead. No, not individually, but collectively, we as individual churches, you know, when you've got right here in this city, you've got First Baptist and you've got, you know, First United Methodist and you've got Sacred Heart Catholic and you've got Assembly of God and right on down the line, you've got all these congregations serving in the name of Jesus. Well, that's Jesus multiplied all throughout this county. And so if every one of those churches is accomplishing their mission, look at what Jesus is doing. When Jesus was here in the flesh, he was one person who could be the greatest person ever, of course, but one person who could only be in one place at one time. But now he's multiplied times thousands upon thousands around the world because each local church is Jesus Christ in the flesh. So if God's going to get anything done, it's going to be through us. That's how he chooses to work, which reminds me of some, a story I heard once. Two men we're sitting and watching the news together, and one of them said, you know, I sure wish I could ask God when he's going to start doing something about all these problems in the world. And the other man said, yeah, but I'd worry he would ask me the same question. 
Why isn't God doing something about poverty? Why isn't God doing something about racism? Why isn't God doing something about abortion? Why isn't God doing something about poor education or broken families? Well, why aren't we? We're the body of Christ. We should be doing the work that God wants to accomplish. Second takeaway. The best church isn't necessarily the biggest. The best church is the one where every member is doing his part. You can have a member, you can have a church with 5,000, a church with 50. If that 50 member church is a church where every member is, is at work accomplishing the work of God using their gifts, not looking with uh, jealousy upon someone else and not sitting it out, then that church is accomplishing more for God. It is, it stands to reason. By the way, side note, some of you may wonder why there's always this big push to plant new churches. You may say, we got churches on every corner. Why do we need to plant new churches? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because there, there are always new kinds of people moving in. And so you sometimes need a, a new kind of church to reach that particular group of people. But the real reason is new churches grow faster. Why do new churches grow faster? Because when a new church begins, every member of the church is bought in. You don't join a new church plant because you want to sit and be fed. You join a new church plant because you want to serve. And those churches grow fast. And denominations realize, boy, it's a lot more efficient to start new churches than it is to try to light a fire under these older churches. Now, I'm called to pastor established churches. I'm called to be the one who comes in and lights a fire, so to speak, and revitalizes. So that's what I believe in. I'm just telling you that is the case in denominational life. What we need, what churches like ours, what every church that's been around longer than five or ten years needs, is the Holy Spirit's revival. When Holy Spirit revival comes, what happens? Every member gets filled with the Spirit and starts serving and doing their part and accomplishing their purpose. And that's when the church is impossible to stop. And that's really the only thing that can make that happen. It's not an inspiring speech from the pulpit. It's not, uh, it's not some great vision that gets cast. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. And so uh, that's why we should pray for revival, not just at First Baptist, but across our country. So let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the Holy Spirit, Lord, that He has brought us into the family through the blood of Jesus, and He has given us faith. Lord, He has taught us Your Word, and He has empowered us to do so much more than we otherwise could. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would fall upon this nation at this time, upon everyone who calls themselves by Your name, and revive us. Lord, we pray for churches across our country that we would uh, throw off our idols and wake up and start to serve you wholeheartedly, that we would be unified, that we would love the people within our congregation and see them through your eyes, and therefore we'd be enabled to love the people outside our church. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.